April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where it's ridiculously cold for May. I protest. Um, uh, but, uh, where there's a lot to discuss in the world and I am delighted to be joined in order to discuss that by the ever spectacular Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you, Rosa? I'm very well. Thank you, David. I, I sort of like this weather. You, it's beats 98 degrees and humid. You, you would like this. Weather. <laughs> um, uh, and now Somebody who should like this weather because it would remind him of home is Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Do you like this gloomy, wet weather? I, I tolerate it in a sort of phlegmatic way, um, nice. but I'd prefer it to be warm and not humid, which is a rare occurrence. Yeah, I just want it to be warm all the time. All right. Uh, look, there are a lot of things going on in the world. I'm going to take them in no particular order. Uh uh, obviously, the international story this week that is going to get the most coverage is the coronation. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I know that Ed loves to talk about this stuff. And you said right before we were going on the air that you're getting on an airplane. And I assume you're flying directly to London, change into your morning coat and heading for the ceremonies, right? I'll see you there, Westminster Abbey, sitting on the stone of gone. I don't know. Yes, gone, not scone. Well done, David. (laughs) You had a hurdle and you cleared it. It it, it sort of wobbled for a moment. Uh, I'm going to be borrowing the um, the, the State Department um, Gulfstream that's available to all DCMs. Um, just fly straight into London City Airport and then take a chopper to to Westminster. Um, Bravo for the reference to the diplomat. Um, be careful, and all of our listeners are going to believe you, and they're all going to go into the Foreign Service and be sorely disappointed when they. And this is what Ed Luce said that that's the way it worked. That is the truth. Then, then I'll be going on to my Cinderella shoot shortly <laughs> after that for British Vogue. Uh, uh, no, I, I'm actually going to Berlin for, for a conference. 
And so I'm being very un, unpatriotic. I, I won't be in London. Um, uh, and I guess I will keep a beady eye on the TV on Saturday. Um, will you? Coronation. Seriously. I, 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 I might. I mean, uh, you know, or I might just <laughs> get my daughter to send the TikTok highlights. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it, there's one thing I'd say for Charles is he's really trying to, without much success, downgrade, downsize the British monarchy to be more like a bourgeois European bicycling monarchy. And they're not letting him, but Charles's intentions are to sort of like be much less conspicuous. And, um, uh, in that regard, I sort of respect, I respect his intentions, but I don't think he's going to realize them. Um, European bicycling monarchy. What do you think of all this, Rosa? You went to England right when you were a youngster. Yes. And you said, I'm going to school here. You love the crowned heads of Europe. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. It's it's the kind Um, of thing you love. Well, you know, I've always kind of liked Charles, uh, uh, precisely because nobody else liked him. I always felt it was my duty to like him since, since, uh, he wasn't the world's most popular charismatic royal um so i'm gonna be a little pro charles you know i think the poor guy is trying you know he is trying uh and he's tried to take seriously serious issues and not just be a frivolous fellow and we we approve of that but that being said who on earth decided it was going to be a good idea to ask everybody uh all all british subjects all to you know sit in front of their televisions and swear allegiance to the king I mean, uh, <laughs> it talk about tone deaf, right? I'm, I'm gonna, we're gonna be, we're gonna assume that wasn't poor Charles, and he didn't like it. So let's assume it was some very foolish advisors came up with this idea. But what God, a horrible, I, I hope Trump, idea! I, I hope Trump never hears about. Well, that. precisely right. This is 2023, <laughs> and the idea that even as part of sort of pomp and circumstance, that the citizens of a of a nation would swear allegiance to an individual monarch is just so (laughs) stunningly messed up, not to mention stunningly, as I said, tone deaf. Yeah, I think Charles is kind of the Kendall Roy of the royal family. What do you think, Ed? (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, he's definitely not Roman. Uh, I mean, that would be, I don't know, a sort of cross between Andrew and and Harry. uh, I guess he's kind of the Kendall Roy. He's sort of destined to get get the prize late and and just won't go well. Um, and and so I sort of share some some of um, Rose's pity for him. But of course, he's been overtly craving this moment since he was about twenty four. I think he's now seventy four. Um, oh, poor fellow. I thought he was gonna. You know, I thought he was gonna only become king when he was ninety eight. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, the, the truth is, the sad, sad truth is that, you know, this is a sort of showbiz. This is Razzmatazz. And if it were William and Kate, uh, you know, there'd probably be five times of viewership and nobody would begrudge some ridiculous pledge in front of their TV. Um, uh, it is a ridiculous, uh, completely tone deaf, boomeranged idea. I don't know who dreamt it up. Um, the only consolation I can find is that almost nobody will recite it and nobody will care that they don't recite it. So it's just sort of a, a complete screw up there. Who thought of this? 
will probably, you know, get get a promotion, but they they should they should never be heard of again. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. It's really it's really the equivalent of the Met Gala, isn't it, Rosa? I mean, I'm sure you were sitting at home watching E News's red carpet coverage of the Met Gala. Wondering which of those gowns you would be wearing to yeah, Georgetown. Yeah, you know, I've already started working my home sewing corner on the. You know, I I was thinking that there's some really nice outfits. Um, uh, yes, that sort of weird puffy white thing. Um, I'm going to go everywhere in something like that from now on. Yeah, you mean the Jared Leto and the Choupette cat outfit? I mean that was. <laughs> I I have to say I didn't see all of the really good outfits. I I wasn't paying enough attention. But um, what a bizarre event! I, there it's are things a horrible. in this world. There are things in this world that I do not understand. And That's what the Met Ball and people who want to go to the Met Ball and people who want to wear peculiar outfits like that are are in the category of things I don't understand. Right up there, right up there with the royal family. Ed, the Met Ball, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, the Royal Coronation—all the same, right? <laughs> yeah, and this uh, red carpet unifies them. Uh, um, I, I'm I'm pleased to say that though it would have been far easier for me to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner than the coronation, that I didn't go to that either, and I certainly would never be invited to the Met um, to the Met Gala. Um, but uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner was, um, I guess, a little bit less cringe cringe making this time than previous times. I stopped going literally about a decade ago, having been about 10 times. So I, it's not like I'm any great virtuous figure, but um, I just got bored of it. And, um, you know, mass cooking for 2000 people in a dingy basement in a so-called five-star hotel is not a good way to spend your Saturday evenings when, uh, you know, when you've got when you can watch it on TV. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, I, I did watch the Roy Wood speech, which was very good. I thought that was ex- an extremely funny speech. Um, and I thought Biden held up fine. Um, but I'm oh, glad that I wasn't there. That, I'm so sorry that that's it. But that's kind of the response people have to Biden these days, Rosa, right? It's like he did not slump forward into the microphone. I mean, I'm a very pro-Biden guy. I've like written articles saying it doesn't matter that he's old um, because he's doing a good job. But we do kind of watch him with a certain concern. (laughs) Well, I don't actually watch him with concern because I don't, I mean, I think unfortunately now that we live in the post-truth universe and the universe of all disinformation all the time, it doesn't really matter what poor Joe Biden does or doesn't do. I mean, I, Thus far, as far as I can tell, but there's yet to be any situation in which it seems to me that Biden has been affected by his age in a negative way in a, in a public setting. Um, you know, he seems to be doing perfectly fine. Um, um, That's true. You know, he has he has off moments, but presidents who are 20 years younger uh, have had their off moments. Uh, and in fact, Trump had an entire off four years. So um, but that being said, it doesn't really make any difference because the the attack media on the far right is going to Photoshop things and have misleading headlines and fake things anyway. So it doesn't really matter what Biden does or doesn't do. You know, the people who are, who are favorable to him will vote for him regardless. The people who hate him will hate him regardless. So for, I, you know, I'm not sure there's much of anything that he can, can do or should do uh, or shouldn't do that will make any particular, particular difference here. Well said. 
Um, Ed, um, speaking of uh, uh, sort of strange um, displays um, of of without uh, you know that that are confusing to the observer, um, the the Kremlin today says there was an attack by a Ukrainian drone, and they show this picture of like a firecracker going off over the Kremlin at Kremlin and and two two firemen on the roof, even as it approaches, strangely enough, um, which a number of people have suggested was um, staged, a false flag operation, um, and which the Kremlin asserts was the Ukra- Ukraine trying to kill Putin. Um, since it almost certainly wasn't that, how weird was that? Extremely weird until you remember that, you know, with Zirkov and all the sort of te- technological wizards and manipulative sort of um, minds around Putin who came from reality TV, Russian, you know, 1990s reality TV, that this is sort of part of their longstanding bag of tricks, false flag things, fake news, um, and, um, you know, weird staged incidents up to and including, you know, massacres of children. Um, if some fairly creditable accounts can be believed of, of the um, siege of that school and that there was another of a, of a, of a theater, um, that Putin is capable of staging far more extravagant things than, a, than an alleged Ukrainian drone attack on his uh, attempt on his life. Uh, the Ukrainian denials of previous incidents, such as the killing of um, Alexander Durgin's daughter, clearly meant to kill Durgin, the far-right Russian sort of mystic nationalist, neo-fascist. The denials were very differently worded. Um, they were sort of, oh, we don't know anything about this. So they're sort of winking as they deny. This one, it was immediate. No, 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 this was a categorically not us. And I'm inclined to believe that, particularly given the visuals you've just described, David. The question then is why? Why would he stage this? Um, I guess there's going to be a lot of kabuki around this upcoming Ukrainian offensive. And, and although we've all sort of trained ourselves to be pessimistic about it, we have trained ourselves to be pessimistic in the past and been um, happily disproven. Um, and it might be that Putin knows something that we don't, um, uh, uh, and that this is going to be a far more effective counteroffensive, or he fears it will be, than than we than we believe. That's an interesting uh, uh, insight, uh, Rosa. Uh, particularly in light of the fact that you know there were there have been a couple of notable Ukrainian successful attacks in Crimea recently sort of outside of their usual range. Um, uh, one particularly spectacular uh, seeming attack on the on a, uh, oil um, uh, uh, facility. Um, well, what, what do you, what do you think of all this? What do you think they're getting at? Do you, do you buy Ed's analysis? I, you know, I don't know enough about it to really have an informed opinion on the likelihood that the, the drone attack, supposed drone attack in, on the Kremlin was staged or was, as the Ukrainians have suggested, the work of some sort of, you know, half-baked partisan group operating locally. 
Um, I do think that, you know, one problem in, in all conflicts, obviously, is that both sides can easily lose control of their partisans. Um, you know, they may have control over their own forces, but, but neither side has full control over partisan groups and, you know, uh, de facto militias and so forth. And, and, you know, Ed knows more about this than I do. Uh, uh, and if Ed, if you think it's staged, I'm going to go with what you think, but, but I, I was going I with what David thought. Yeah. Oh shit. Then we're and in I, trouble. Oh Yeah. Hey, look! I was a stage director for fifteen years, <laughs> well, okay. so I know True. about stage. So you did it. Staging. You're the one who did it. Could, it's good to happen. Um, um, uh, but, but I mean, I do, I do, I do worry as I as I've always worried that you know things things escalate, things escalate in surprising and unexpected ways for surprising and unexpected reasons. It's it's hard to predict, um, and I do continue to worry that the Ukrainians don't have much of a strategy except let's poke them in the eye whenever we can and as much as we can, um, which, you know, I, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that they, they have a different strategy than poke everybody in the eye as much as we can. And much as Putin deserves to be poked in the eye, I, I continue to worry about unintended consequences um, of increasingly aggressive Ukrainian actions that, that strike more directly at Russia. We've seen some, even if this was staged completely, it had nothing to do with the Ukrainians, obviously. We have seen, as you said, increasing Ukrainian willingness to take some risks, uh, including including some strikes inside Russian territory. And I, I will say once again, you know, how does this end? Um, does this make things more likely to end well or less likely or it doesn't make a difference? I don't know. You know, I've been noticing it recently. A number of commentators who have been sort of smart observers of this whole thing have just sort of thrown off the gloves and they've said, they need F-16s, get them the F-16s. They need attackums, get them the attackums. Get them whatever they need. They've got to make this offensive count. Uh, and by the way, while you're at it, you know, change the rules of engagement. If the Russians are sending threats from inside Russia, let them go after Russia. Uh, Russians don't follow through on their saber rattling. And uh, it's time the, you know, Ukraine being given every possible means of success. Um, how do you, how do you view all that? Um, you know, I'm inclined to be a little bit more, um, uh, maybe quite a lot more leeway than I would have had a year ago when Putin first started nuclear, um, dropping thick nuclear hints. Um, um, partly because I believe, you know, it's pretty clear by now that China has made, made it explicit, the Xi Jinping's made it explicit to Putin that a nuclearization of this is not acceptable. And he's made that public statement several times. He is sort of semi-flirting with the idea of being the savior, um, peace broker. Um, you know, I'll believe that when I, when I see it. Um, but I think if it was ever going to happen and um, that there was some sort of semi-constructive Chinese role in, um, bringing a, a, at least a temporary hope, hopefully a permanent end to this war, it would be after a successful Ukrainian offensive that had really pushed Russia's red lines and alarmed China that this could escalate beyond control. So I would be inclined to provide attackums. Um, you know, I don't know whether I would ship, um, F American F-15s directly to, to, to Ukraine. I, I'm, I'm not, uh, 
I'd, I'd still be a bit more cautious on that front. This is sort of NATO jets from its chief superpower, um, you know, could could go in all kinds of um, scary directions. Um, but I would, I would, um, I would have the Defense Production Act, you know, to, to get these supply shortages and the ma- and the manufacturing timetables accelerated. We can do it. I mean, if, if we were directly at war, we would be. Um, I think that we could be producing a lot more. Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of people who, who wish we had the capacity and that are, um, and, and I think they're focused heavily on that. Um, and I'm going to come back to that in one moment. I think our, our lack of our lack of production capacity and the slow speed of our production capacity is is concerning on unrelated grounds as well, obviously. Right, and and so I'm going to come back with that with my last question for our last little bit of this segment. But I do want to ask you, Rosa, um, you know, Ed brings up something which is interesting. And every time I bring it up to a senior, or most of the time I bring it up to senior U.S. officials, they go, oh, tut, tut, tut. You know, that's we're not really sure about that. But that is, you know, China could have done a lot to help Russia in this. Um, they could have not just, you know, issued press releases. They could have given them stuff, supported them, given them more money, backed them, not chided them on atomic stuff, not said that they were seeking, you know, seek a solution to this thing. Not there was a UN vote, uh, uh, on, on this in this past week, uh, 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 condemning the action they voted for. China's actually played a semi constructive role here, particularly given um, where we thought they were going to go, given their alliance. Do you agree or disagree? Well, you know, this is all working out fine for China, right? I mean, from China's perspective, uh, the U.S. getting bogged down in the Middle East, in Afghanistan and and then Iraq, um, was fantastic, right? It kept us really busy, wasted a lot of our money, um, meant that we weren't paying attention to anything else, uh, and they could operate freely in parts of the world that they might not otherwise they might otherwise have faced strong U.S. pushback. Um, and now Putin has done them another favor, you know, which is getting into this conflict. Which, yeah, it's kind of awkward, but on the other hand, it means that both Russia and the U.S. and our European allies are totally preoccupied with what's going on in Ukraine. And once again, China gets to do whatever it wants in the meantime. Not quite whatever it wants. Obviously, we're keeping a close eye on. South China Sea and a close eye on Taiwan, but but you know for the for the most part China it, it, it ends up enhancing China's stature uh, relative to both Russia and the United States. It ends up positioning China potentially, as you say, to be able to swoop in at some point and say you know magnanimously you know well gee it looks like you you poor schmoes can't sort out your own problems, but you know we're here to help and maybe even do that right? Do I think that that's likely to happen because China is just such a generous, peace-loving nation? No, not particularly. But I think I think this has all worked out rather well for China. And 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 the, the dance that they're doing is, you know, they don't want to walk away from Putin. They also don't want to be unduly provocative to anybody else. And so they're 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 being quite careful. And as you said, they're issuing nice press releases talking about the, you know, there there are no limits to their loving relationship with with Putin. Uh, but on the other hand, they're really not giving him very much. And in fact, most of the concessions in terms of the you know, trade advantages and so on have been to China's benefit, not to Russia's benefit. Um, so I think China's sitting pretty here. Um, and again, you know, that doesn't end up being such a bad thing. I mean, regardless of China's motivations, if they play a 
moderately constructive role or even a neutral role rather than a destructive role. That's, 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 you know, I'll take it, right? I mean, it, things could be worse, um, uh, in terms of China, what China is, is conveying to Russia. Um, things could be a whole lot worse. So, so all things considered, I think, you know, it's, it's not such a bad thing. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't nonetheless have, a great deal of confidence. I mean, the the Ed, the, the scenario Ed outlined um, um, of well, you know, boy, if we help the Ukrainians enough, maybe things push Russia so close to the brink um, uh, of open conflict with NATO that China feels compelled to intervene. That may be that's possible that that is what will happen. Uh, on the other hand, and, it, and it's not like I have a better idea, frankly. But on the other hand, needless to say, that's it's a dangerous game um because it could it, it, it might not work right what if instead of everybody gets to the brink and china shrugs and says good luck guys see ya we've got other things to do you know shoot it out um i don't think that's likely to happen but it could right so so i don't i it still leaves me feeling kind of queasy about the situation we're in right now as i said i don't have a lot of better ideas other than continuing to work really really hard and i assume that we're doing this i, I would like okay i'd like to assume i hope we are doing this already behind the scenes to try to start laying the groundwork for some kind of eventual deal. Okay. So uh, you mentioned production capacity and that we need to increase it. Um, um, And uh, that was mentioned in a speech um, given uh, last uh, Thursday, I think by Jake Sullivan at the Brookings Institution. It was a wide ranging speech on U.S. international economic policy. Um, and I would go further and say it was the widest ranging speech on U.S. international economic policy um, or expression of any sort on the subject that I've ever seen from a national security advisor. It was really kind of remarkable. Uh, it also talked about U.S.-China policy and made a point that Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen had made a few days earlier, which was that the United States um, cannot decouple economically from China. That would be disastrous. Uh, and introduced the idea that we are de-risking, you know, that we are trying to minimize certain kinds of risks in our competition with China. But overall, it laid out um, the broad thesis of the Biden administration on trade, on um, domestic economic policy, on how foreign policy fit together with domestic economic policy. Um, uh, it was quite a remarkable event if you're a inside the Beltway wonk like me. What did, you're, you're not like that. You're a sophisticated man of the world, Ed. What did you think? Uh, I reject the premise of your question, but I'll tell you what I think of it anyway, which is, well, you know, I have a sort of quite a personal interest in this speech because high up he sort of rebuts um, the um, idea that the quotation marks new Washington consensus um, uh, uh, is America alone. And that's a reaction to column I w- wrote the week before. Um, nobody, nobody else had written those words. And in fact, they've sort of made it clear since um, that that's what what they were um, responding to. So it said it said that m- my take on that was flatly wrong. Those are his words. Um, I would agree. I, I have with to you. say, as a columnist, that's a kind of a pretty big deal. You know, the administration rolls out the big guns to refute you. That says you're a very powerful man. 
No, it doesn't say that. I, I would say rebut me because refute <laughs> means uh, refute means disprove. I'd say the argument is open. But you know, uh, one of the great things about Jake Sullivan is he is not a raging ego at all. He's very open to argument, de debate, testing his um, concepts. And this is a, an evolving strategy, some of which is very good, some of which isn't so good. Um, I think that um, the fact that he said that IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is a total talking shop, he sort of cited that as an example of America is working with allies and partners. That was the weakest point in this speech because it, it really is a sort of toothless body and, and not taken seriously in Asia. Um, but the sort of larger vision uh, of an America that, um, you know, is knitting, is knitting its domestic sort of rejuvenation, industrial policy, etc., with a, um, a more nuanced approach to containing China, not that he used the word containing, but a more nuanced one than, you know, we, we would be getting from Capitol Hill, from uh, Mike Gallagher's China committee. You know, this was, I agree with you, a very rare and impressive speech, particularly to come from a national security advisor, more economics than, you know, ever, you know, than in any, all of Kissinger's speeches put together, um, or Brzezinski's for that matter. Um, because that is the nature of the challenge. You know, if we are, if we are trying to shut off, um, chips and uh, other components that will boost China's AI ambitions in its military sphere, um, then the whole game becomes what is civil and what is military, what is civilian and what is military. And therefore, economic policy is a national security question. They become one and the same thing. And so it's quite natural that, you know, a lot of his speech was devoted to that. Um, but it means we're in new territory. Um, and the game of deciding the very arduous and continually real-time, never-ending task of deciding what would be civil and what would be mill, what would be civil, what would be mill, you know, is never going to have clarity or certainty because it's 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 uh, it's always going to be a debatable question. Really interesting and um, indeed here here. Although I, I would add that whether national security advisors of the past would acknowledge it or not, uh, economic policy was always national security policy. Um, and the fact that some of them were incapable of discussing it um, uh, is not to their credit. There have been others, by the way, who have had senior posts in this area. George Schultz comes to mind, who actually were very good at this kind of thing. Um, uh, but uh, Rosa, uh, I don't know if you followed it very closely, but I was wondering what your reaction was to it or Ed's comments. No, I think Ed, Ed is Ed is exactly right, and I completely I wish to I wish to associate myself in full with Ed's comments. Um, I mean, I think the only the only gloss I would add to the end, of course, uh, needless to say, given given my own my own work is uh, that that task of just we 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 continue to have legal frameworks that want us to draw the distinction between military and civilian, and that distinction not only lacks clarity and has never had full clarity it's 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 gotten almost entirely meaningless at this point um and we have not come up with any criteria to replace it uh which is makes it makes our policies somewhat incoherent uh excellent excellent point i have views on this also um which i wrote in a column in the daily beast today called how something bidenomics finally beats reaganomics something i don't you know in that vein <laughs> 
but it was really good, whatever it was called. It was very good. It was very good. Bring it up for that reason. But thank you. And um, I just say, you know, if you want to hear what my thoughts are on it, I I had a different critique, a little, you know, even though it was kind of a positive column, um, I, I feel, I still feel that the policy that they're promoting of this small garden, high fence, we're going to keep the Chinese from getting these technologies isn't going to work. Um, and I think it, it may be somewhat a uh, futile policy, but otherwise I thought it was a good speech. And I think there is another dimension to it, which is how far this administration has moved away from Reaganomics and Reaganomics light and neoliberalism and let's do it for Wall Street and so forth over the course of the past two and a half years. I think it's quite a remarkable distance. And this was yet another sign of it. But uh, 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 people can read the speech. The White House has posted uh, the speech. Um, uh, they should read Ed's column. Also, Ed had a really good column, really interesting one. We have one minute left if you want to say something about it here on uh, this book about the John Birch Society, which I felt chilled reading because our next door neighbor when I was growing up was a rabid member of the John Birch Society and was, you know, held up by my parents as the example of all evil in the universe. But, um, yeah, I've got a suspicion, and this is you know, much less likely that we have a Bircher type neighbor. He's fairly elderly, and there's a lot of um, a lot of mail gets put through our letterbox, confused and mixed up, and it's like Federalist Society stuff, and um, and he's just got some eccentric would be the polite way views on the world. But in case he's a deep state listener, or in case he's actually bugged through these walls. Um, I'm going to say I've got no proof or evidence of this. And even if he is a bircher, he's a very charming neighbor. <laughs> he's not in QAnon. Yeah. Don't pull Q-Anon. into his driveway. That's Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to. Don't attempt to argue with him if he shoots guns off in his backyard. Yeah. No, no, none of that will happen. Uh, um, it's a great book, though. I mean, and and this is Matthew Dalek, um, who is in a you know a family line of historians, and it's a really, really good reminder that the project to remake the American state, or rather to sort of drown it in a bathtub, except for its regulation of women's bodies, um, you know, dates back and has been making extraordinary gains over a, a period of decades. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great column. Um, well, it's been very nice to uh, speak with you folks, as it always is. Ed, I hope you have a safe and productive journey to Berlin. Um, uh, Rosa, wherever you're going in and around our Delaware. Arlington. I'm going to Delaware. Are you? For uh, something exciting or is it? Just... <laughs> I'm just visiting a friend, but I'm very excited about it. Yeah. No, Delaware is an incredibly exciting state. For all of you who've only seen the Joe Biden rest area on I-95, um, I encourage you to see the rest of the state. And I encourage you to come back for more from us uh, tomorrow. We've got an interesting podcast coming, a uh, discussion with John Delavolpe from Harvard about his recent study of young voters, which he does every year. And uh, it was kind of eye-opening about where we may be headed. Uh, and more like that. So go to the dsrnetwork.com for more of that. And if you want to become a member, click on members and become a member. It's $5 a month, and it helps us 
a lot. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, so thanks to everybody for listening and uh, come back again real soon. Bye-bye.